With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for joining us on today's interview for the Innovation of Myeloma series on MPatient Radio. Our goal for this series is to connect patients with myeloma specialists. In their research, myeloma doctors are identifying hurdles we need to overcome to find a cure. By participating in clinical trials, we as patients can determine how fast they run towards that goal. We're joined today by one of the many great researchers who is helping to discover the next target, Dr. Don Benson. We're also joined today by one of his patients, Joel Wharton, who will introduce Dr. Benson and later share with us his experience in joining a clinical trial. Dr. Benson and Joel, it's great to have you. Joel, will you please introduce Dr. Benson? Sure. Thanks, Jenny. It's a privilege for me to introduce my own doctor today. Dr. Don Benson is an assistant professor of clinical internal medicine at the Arthur James Cantor Hospital and Richard Solov Research Institute at The Ohio State University. His specialty and clinical interests include multiple myeloma, amyloidosis, and blood and marrow transplantation. In addition to his clinical practice, Dr. Benson is an avid researcher in the arena of natural killer cell biology and immunotherapy. He was voted 2012 Professor of the Year at The Ohio State University College of Medicine. He is a well-educated and well-published expert in multiple myeloma. He's also a committed advocate. Just last weekend, he and his wife rode bikes 180 miles over two days in the Pelotonia while raising millions of dollars to fund novel cancer research. On a personal note, I feel most blessed to be under his care. Four years ago, Dr. Benson's first question to me was, what's important to you? His treatment philosophy gives my life such dignity. He sees me first as a man with life goals and dreams that happens to have myeloma. His advocacy is very personal. I found a myeloma specialist that is both highly competent as a physician and thoroughly concerned about my life as a husband, a father, a counselor, a man of faith, and a fellow human. I really appreciate his personal approach to my treatment, and it's good to welcome him to today's conversation. And thanks, Joel. It was very kind of you. Thank you. You're welcome. So, where should we start, Jenny? Do you want to start talking about immunotherapy in general and the approach that we've been studying here? I would love for you to do that. Okay. So, um, our our research is a little bit unique here that we uh, that where we focus. Um, you know, most of your listeners, I'm sure, know that. Uh, the research in myeloma is a very active area right now. Just in the last year, there's been two new treatments FDA approved for myeloma, Kyprolis and Pomalist. And um, the pace of research in myeloma is, is very fast, and it's actually accelerating even faster. 
Um, we're, we're, um, as a field, we're moving away from cytotoxic chemotherapies, from drugs that work like poisons, and we're moving quickly into this new area of designer uh, designer treatments or targeted treatments for myeloma that can kill myeloma cells without collateral damage to the to the patient or to other healthy cells in the body. Um, our research is, um, I suppose, a little complementary to uh, traditional therapies, though, because we focus mainly on how to harness the body's immune system to fight the cancer. And we started with this um, with the uh, the observation that um, a, a donor stem cell transplant may be a curative therapy for myeloma. And to go back a little bit further, we know that uh, for other types of blood cancer, a donor stem cell transplant may cure those cancers, leukemias, lymphomas, and so forth. And really for 20 years or so, um, there has been a lot of research into donor transplants for multiple myeloma as a potentially curative therapy. But compared to the success that's been seen in other blood cancers, donor transplants for myeloma have remained, a, relatively speaking, an investigational approach still. The reason for that is that um, while it, it appears that some patients may be cured with this approach, um, the risk is very high, the risk of dying from the transplant itself or suffering significant toxicities and side effects is uh, very great. So donor transplant has not become a standard of care yet for myeloma. And the bulk of the research that we've done in our laboratory and in our clinical trials uh, has been to look at the principles of how benefits are obtained from donor transplant and try to exhibit those favorable benefits using the patient's own immune system so as to uh, uh, circumvent the, the great risks of a donor transplant in um, in this kind of setting. So um, if, if people aren't familiar with a donor transplant, it's um, a process where we find uh, a healthy source of cells. Sometimes it's a brother or sister. Sometimes it's a volunteer donor. These days we can get... Um, we, we can even get uh, blood stem cells from umbilical cords, and we give those we give those uh, cells, uh, those stem cells, um, from the donor to the patient. And in doing that, what we're actually doing is transplanting the immune system from the donor into the patient. And in this kind of approach, the um, the curative intent from that type of treatment comes from the donor's immune system. It doesn't come from the chemo or the radiation or the other treatments we give. It's actually an effect that's mediated from the donor's immune system. That for whatever reason, the donor's immune system can recognize the myeloma as being cancer and kill those cells off once and for all. Um, the problem with that approach, much of the risk with that approach, comes when the donor's immune system recognizes the patient's body as being foreign too. And while it attacks the myeloma, it also attacks the patient's body, and people die from that. And, and that's really the barrier that's kept that as an investigational experimental treatment still. What we do in our laboratory and what we've done in our clinical trials is to try to dissect or try to divorce those two effects. In other words, we've tried to develop treatments 
where we can harness the body's immune system to kill myeloma cells but prevent the body's immune system from attacking itself. That, that's kind of the general overview of what, um, what we do. That's great. And we know that you are specializing in certain types of immunotherapy. Can you kind of describe for us the different types of immunotherapy that are available? Sure. So uh, the history of immune therapy is very interesting. Um, it actually goes back over 100 years. Back in the late 1800s, there were doctors who were uh, um, making observations that um, the immune system may be able to recognize and kill cancer cells. And in fact, when a cell in the in the uh, human body um, goes bad, when it, when a cell uh, develops a mutation, when a cell doesn't divide properly, one of the reasons we have our immune system is to take care of that cell. That many times, um, the majority of the time, the body's immune system is able to recognize that that uh, abnormal process and kill that cell long before it could ever cause cancer or cause any any problems that would come to attention. The, the body's immune system has um, two arms, basically. Uh, there's an innate arm, um, which I like to think of as an early responder arm. And then there's a more evolved arm. There's an adoptive arm of the immune system uh, that that um, uh, is charged with, with other responsibilities, like remembering a stimulus. So uh, if you think about certain viruses or certain infections that people can get, there's an arm of the immune system that responds right away, and then there's an arm that puts the rest of the fire out and keeps it from happening again. So traditionally, in immune therapy, uh, ever since its inception, what people have done thematically is uh, try to stimulate an immune response. In other words, they try to rev up the body's immune system. And... Um, I think about, you know, race cards. It's as if people are trying to step on the gas to try to really rev up the immune system and generate an immune response against the cancer. People have done this with vaccines, with cancer vaccines. People have done this with cytokines, which are um, which are hormones to try to stimulate an immune response. Um, people have done this with uh, certain types of bone marrow and stem cell transplants. But somatically... Um, since the infancy of immunotherapy, the goal has been to try to stimulate the immune system to turn it on, um, to get the cells angry, to get them fired up, and get them out there killing tumor cells. In the last 10 years or so, what people have started to realize is just like a race car, if you step on the gas but the brakes are still on, it's hard to get your car moving. And so in the last 10 years, a new area of immunotherapy has started, um, and it's basically, conceptually, it's um, uh, an effort to try to take the brakes off the immune system. And so that's that's thematically most of the work that we're doing. In other words, we're trying to figure out uh, how cancer cells can hide from the immune system. Why isn't the immune system able to recognize this cancer as being abnormal? And then what are ways that we can take the brakes off? What are ways that we can release the immune system from inhibition and use it to kill cancer cells successfully? And would you like to describe the different kind of subcategories, I guess, of immunotherapy? Sure. So the, most people who work in immune therapy study cells called T-cells. And so these are 
cells that are in the adoptive arm. They're in the second arm of the immune system. And one of the attractive things about T cells is uh, that they have a memory for their target. So in other words, if you could teach a T cell how to kill a cancer cell, those T cells can remember what that cancer looks like. And down the road, they can prevent the cancer from coming back. So people that study cancer vaccines, for example, focus their energies on T cells because in theory, these cells could eradicate the cancer and then keep a memory in the immune system for what the cancer looks like. So um, the effect would be not only to put the cancer in remission, um, but then to have a memory in the immune system for what it looked like. So if the cancer ever tried to come back, the immune system could take care of it again. The type of cells we study in our laboratory are called natural killer cells, or NK mm -hmm. cells. These are also lymphocytes. They're also cells in the body who... Um, their their lot in life is to circulate around in the bloodstream and look for trouble. And these are innate immune cells, which means they're part of that first responder arm. So uh, with any kind of um, injury in the body, with any kind of trauma or infection, the, the natural killer cells are among the first on the scene. They're the ones that arrive right away and assess the situation and try to figure out what needs to be done. And the natural killer cells... Uh, can make cytokines. They can send signals to other cells in the immune system to say, we need your help here. Uh, but the, the natural killer cells are kind of in the trenches on the front line trying to keep us healthy every day. And since the mid-1970s, when natural killer cells were first discovered, people have realized that these cells can kill cancer cells. Um, natural killer cells actually got their name in the first publications in the mid-1970s because unlike T cells, they didn't need to be told to kill a cancer cell. In other words, if a natural killer cell is able to realize that a cell is cancer, it'll kill it right away, no questions asked. One of the limitations of a T cell is that it needs at least two signals to be told to kill a cancer cell, whereas if, um, if an NK cell recognizes a cancer cell is foreign, it'll kill it right away. And the other interesting thing about a natural killer cell is once it's killed, it can immediately kill again. So once it has its target acquired, it makes a decision whether this is friend or foe, and then it, it goes about its business. So we've been attracted to NK cells in particular because of those properties, that uh, they have an innate role, they have an early responder role. And in our laboratory and in other laboratories around the country, people have shown in test tubes and petri dishes and in mice and so forth that natural killer cells can certainly kill myeloma cells. Um, how, they, how that happens, how a natural killer cell can kill cancer, was something nobody really understood until about 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. It just wasn't clear. The biology wasn't clear you know, why an NK cell would kill one cancer and not another. And, and we've begun to unravel that, and more importantly, we've begun to translate that into a clinic with new treatments. So, in fact, the, the clinical trial that Joel's participating in right now is one of these one of these trials to actually augment natural killer cell function. Basically, the way it works, and I, I apologize if I slip into um, a, a scientific foreign language. Catch me. I'm trying to stay away from from oh, okay. uh, <laughs> science terms as much as I can. But basically, what what we think is that uh, cancer cells develop an ability to hide from the immune system. And the way that they do that oftentimes 
is that they preferentially express proteins on their surface that look like you, that, that tell the immune system, hey, we're part of the good guys here, hey, we belong here, leave us alone. So that when a natural killer cell comes by, it can't recognize it as cancer. The, the cancer cell looks like a normal cell to the immune system, and so they are left untouched. And the cancer cells also make cytokines. They make signals and send them to the immune system to blunt its effect or to cause the immune cells to die. Cancer cells use all kinds of strategies to hide and uh, prevent the immune system from seeing them, as it were, or seeing them as foreign anyway. So a lot of the uh, treatments that we've been working on uh, are ways, are strategies to uncouple that effect. And so the um, the first example is the work that we've done with um, a receptor system called KIR, K-I-R, and and KIR are uh, a family of proteins that are dis- are used by natural killer cells to detect self from non-self. And so KIR are on the surface of natural killer cells, and they use these receptors to feel the surfaces of neighboring cells. And if the KIR receptor finds a self protein on the uh, the target, the candidate target, it won't kill that cell. If it comes up to a cell and does not find any self protein on it, the natural killer cell will kill that cell right away. No questions asked. These these natural killer cells also have activating receptors on them, and so they make these decisions based on how much inhibition they're receiving and how much activation they're receiving. And basically, if they're receiving any inhibition at all, they won't kill. Even in the presence of an activating signal, they won't kill if there's inhibition present. It's kind of like having a safety on a gun that you'd prefer to be safe first rather than sorry. So the inhibition signals always override the activating signals. Uh, so, so in other words, for example, if a cancer cell has an activating protein on it, the natural killer cell can't kill that cell unless there's no inhibition present. So one of the first treatments that we developed was an antibody to block inhibitory cure on natural killer cells. So this was work that uh, started over 10 years ago, and um, we uh, have done geez, probably five or six clinical trials now in different settings uh, for people with multiple myeloma. Uh, the most recent trial that we've done, Joel's actually participating on. And um, uh, basically the way this works is, uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's a strategy to try to take the brakes off the immune system, to release the NK cells from inhibition and let them attack these targets, let them attack these cancer cells. It It's... Uh, a principle that we learned in the setting of donor transplant in in some of these uh, uh, trials where they've done donor transplants, they've looked at the donor's cure proteins and how they interact with the cancer cells. And if the cure cell, if the cure proteins are mismatched with the cancer proteins, the NK cells can kill those tumors readily. And so we're trying to reproduce that effect with the patient's own immune system with the cure antibody. And what stage of study is this? So it's um, the the study is a phase one two study, and I'll give you some background on that. The last time we spoke, we talked about clinical trials and the different stages of development. So, in our first trial with the cure antibody, we did a phase one trial, and this was the first time we had ever given it to patients. So we didn't know a lot at all about 
the right dose, the right duration, um, and so forth. So in the phase one trial that we did several years ago, uh, we treated um, uh, 32 patients in that study. Um, all of them had, all of them basically had myeloma that had uh, no other treatment options left, just like any typical uh, phase one trial. In that study, about a third of the patients actually had their disease stabilized. So we didn't have anybody in that study where the myeloma went away completely or where they had um, durable remissions, but we did have a third of those patients where the progression arrest and their symptoms got better. And so it was at least a, a signal as we learned about dosing and we learned about how to use the antibody um, that gave us some hope as we went forward. So the current trial is a phase, is a phase one, two trial. And the reason it's phase one, two is we're actually giving the cure antibody with Revlimid in this trial. And the reason for that is that, as it turns out, um, drugs like thalidomide and Revlimid and the new drug pomalidomide, um, the, these drugs as a class can kill myeloma cells directly, but indirectly they can also modulate NK cells. In other words, these drugs as a class may actually cause NK cells to become activated and actually cause them to expand as well to proliferate. And so our thinking with this trial was if we use Revlimid to activate cells, um, in other words, to step on the gas, we can use the Kier antibody to release the brakes at the same time. And so in the trial Joel's participating in, patients are getting Revlimid and the Kier antibody together as, as a dual form of immunotherapy, one to turn on the gas and one to take the brakes off. And how long have this husband trial been active and how long um, will it take for you to have results? So the trial uh, went online almost three years ago. Uh, it's done now. Uh, the last patient is, has been enrolled and is still getting treated currently. But at the um, at the upcoming American Society of Hematology meeting in December, we'll be presenting the final results publicly from from this trial. I can tell you, I can tell you today that it's working. That we've had had patients, uh, we've had patients respond to this treatment. Um, we've had some patients do quite well. In fact, the first patient who went on the study uh, is still in remission today. He is a um, gentleman in his mid-50s who um, was diagnosed several years ago and received conventional treatment. Had a uh, stem cell transplant with his own cells. Relapsed a couple years after that and went on the study and is is still in remission today and doing great. We've had a number of other patients both here and at other institutions where the trial's open who've had similar responses. And I don't know, Joel, if you want to talk about your experience on the trial, if that would be helpful. Yeah, I think yeah. it would be. Go ahead, Joel. Sure. Um, yeah, a little history. Uh, I was diagnosed in August of 2009 at the age of 36. And as Dr. Benson just said, I, I participated in conventional Treatment. I was on a Revlimid-Dexamethasone combo leading up to an autologous uh, my own cell transplant in January of 2010. Um, and then I was in a very stable remission for about 18 months. And then as my monoclonal protein began to just gradually rise, um, I made the decision to go on this trial. It's now been 20 months ago. Um, that I started this trial, and as I recall, there were eight 
there were eight monthly doses of the anti-cure treatment that was administered through IV, and those were day-long experiences, um, but virtually no side effects from that drug at all. It was an antibody treatment, isn't that correct, Dr. Benson? Right, yep. Yeah, and so um, I think the, the biggest side effect was just being tired of sitting in one place for eight hours. But otherwise, uh, the, the, that actual treatment had, uh, had no side effects. Uh, and then Revlimid, I was at the highest dose, 25 milligrams of Revlimid, and the result has been a very stable partial remission status for me. There is still a measurable monoclonal, but uh, yeah, I've experienced a very distinct remission that's been very stable. It's wonderful. Thank you, Joel, for sharing sure. your experience. And, and I think you could help us greatly ask questions at the end. Please. Yeah, that's fine. So, Dr. Benson, do you want to continue with your work in immunotherapy? Because I know you had several areas. Yeah, we so along the same lines, we've been working on another protein called PD-1, Program Death Receptor 1. Um PD-1 is a protein that is also a checkpoint or a break in the immune system. And the role of PD-1 normally is to keep your immune system from getting out of control uh, in the setting of an infection. And and so what this protein does is um, once an immune response is made, the the role of PD-1 is to to keep things under control. In other words, to... um, prevent the immune system from going crazy and, and, and causing a lot of uh, continued fevers and, and so forth and so on, a lot of inflammation. What what we've shown in um, myeloma and what at least two other groups have shown now too is that myeloma cells are aware of this protein and they actually can subvert PD-1 signaling as a way to evade the immune system. So in other words, when, when, an, immune, when an immune cell does recognize myeloma, um, the myeloma cell actually has proteins on its surface to stimulate PD-1 on the immune cells to to, uh, prevent their response. So what happens then is that um, even if a cell is recognized, the immune cell can't attack because it's being told to shut down. So in a similar way, uh, there there are a number of antibodies now that target PD-1, and people have been using these um, in clinical trials for colon cancer and melanoma and kidney cancer and so forth. There are early phase trials uh, looking at PD-1 as a target in multiple myeloma, and um, we're going to start our own study here probably next month in September uh, with another antibody that blocks PD-1 signaling. The attractive thing about PD-1 is that it's also on T cells, and so it would be a way potentially, uh, we don't know, that's why we need to do the trial, but it would be a way potentially to involve both arms of the immune system, so not just NK cells, not just innate immunity, but also T cells as well. And it's something we're very excited about because uh, of some of the observations made in the laboratory with this approach. Uh, For instance, blocking this uh, receptor system, blocking PD-1, seems to have a vaccination effect in some of the mouse models that have been used. In other words, treating mice with a PD-1 antibody 
will cause cancer to go away, but it will also prevent that mouse from getting that cancer again. So it's something that we're really excited about on the immune front. We've done a fair amount of work with a drug called elituzumab, and this is a drug that's in phase three trials now for myeloma. The, um, there, there are two big phase three trials. One of them is done close to accrual. The other one should be done by December. And elituzumab is an antibody uh, that targets a protein on the myeloma cells and acts like a flag. In other, in other words, it, it marks the myeloma cells as being uh, targets for the immune system. So a patient's given elituzumab, and uh, when the elituzumab binds to the myeloma cell, uh, it doesn't necessarily kill the cell, but it, what it does is it flags the cell for the attention of the immune system, and then the natural killer cells can come in. Uh, they may not recognize the myeloma cell per se, but they recognize elituzumab on the cell and realize that that's a signal to get rid of that cell. So, like I said, that one is in phase three trials now. Um, we were involved in some of the early work with that and have done some work in our laboratory with that agent and um, had patients in, in some of the early trials that have been published now for a long time, but had, had patients with uh, elituzumab who had similar experiences to Joel, where patients had years of remission using that approach, too. So there are a number of other immune therapies. out. It's interesting now that we learn more about uh, how drugs like Revlimid and, and Pomalist and thalidomide work, as well as Velcade, too, that all of these drugs in part seem to have some beneficial effect in modulating the immune system in addition to their primary effects. So I, I really believe we're we're just on the doorstep of a new era in cancer therapy, being able to, to harness the immune system the way that we're talking about today. I think it's a whole new world. Well, I, when I, um, so I, I teach in the medical school here, and I, I tell the medical students that, um, you know, surgery for cancer has been around since, for, for thousands of years. They, they can, um, they can find, you know, remains, remains that are thousands of years old where, it's apparent that somebody tried surgery on a on a cancer um and we've had radiation for for over a hundred years and we've had chemotherapy for over sixty years and uh and we're still fighting cancer today so I can remember in my training in in the nineteen nineties when I was in medical school and so forth that um one of the attractions to immune therapy for me was that um you know we have all these other approaches and yet we still have cancer and there's got to be a better way to do this. There's got to be a more effective way uh, than cutting the cells out or burning them out or poisoning them. Really, in the last, it's been the last 10 years or the last five years where um, we've seen the most incredible breakthroughs in immune therapy across the board, not only in myeloma but in other forms of cancer too. So it's an exciting time, and I think this, this is just only going to get bigger and, and more widely applied in the next couple of years. Well, it is an exciting time, and I just want to go back to PD-1 because you and I had a conversation about about that, and you started telling me about how effective it was in other types of cancers. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, so PD-1 um, is being studied in a number of cancers, so particularly in melanoma right now, which is a form of skin cancer. Melanoma is a, um, is a terrible cancer. There are no good cancers, but melanoma is, is a particularly aggressive form of skin cancer where once it metastasizes, once it spreads from the skin, historically people um, experience very poor survival. It's a cancer that's difficult to do surgery 
It's a cancer that is not particularly sensitive to radiation and is not a cancer that's particularly responsive to chemotherapy either. So melanoma has been a cancer that was um, been a topic of immune therapy for many years just because there really isn't anything else that has had a good track record. Uh, and melanoma was one of the one of the tumors that I worked on principally when I was in medical school and so forth, that it was something that, at least for some patients, showed promise with immune-based treatment. So several years ago, there was a study done with a drug called ipilimumab, and ipilimumab is an antibody. It's in the same class as Kier and the, the other things that we've talked about so far. And it's the same idea, too. Ipilimumab works by releasing the brakes of the immune system. It targets a protein called CTLA-4. And what they found in this uh, in this clinical trial, they, they had patients with metastatic melanoma who at the time had a life expectancy that was measured in weeks. So at the time this study was done, the average survival with someone uh, for someone with metastatic melanoma was around 12 weeks. And so in this, in this study, the, pe- the people who got uh, ipilimumab uh, actually did quite well. So importantly to note, not everybody responded to the treatment. In fact, it was the minority of patients, only 20 or 30 percent of people, uh, the drug worked. But when it worked, it worked quite well. And in fact, the responses were quite durable. And again, none of these drugs do anything to the tumor directly. They all act on the immune system. And because of that trial, ipilimumab was approved, and it was actually the first treatment that had ever shown a survival benefit for metastatic melanoma in in all the time that anything's ever been studied. And then the current studies have looked to build on that, and that's where PD-1 comes in. PD-1 is expressed more broadly in the immune system than CTLA-4, and therefore is um, maybe a more attractive target for an approach like this. At the ASCO meetings in Chicago back in early June, Uh, we saw our first public uh, presentation of the data from some of these early trials where over half of the patients with metastatic melanoma were responding to PD-1 antibodies. And it's the same idea again, that uh, if you can figure out a way to release the immune system from its inhibitory effects, from the powerful inhibition that it has, uh, you may be able to make a big difference in um, the efficacy of the treatment. And when you initially told me that, and I said, wow, you said that is a severe understatement. <laughs> so can you can you describe the significance of that? Because it's, to me, it's shocking. It is. I, I mean, I can remember um, I can remember taking care of patients with with metastatic melanoma as a, as a student, and um, there there was really nothing that you could do to slow the disease down. That um, people would would come to our clinic and. Uh, they would have one shot at, at a treatment. For many of them, it was a clinical trial because the odds of something else working were just dismal. And thinking back 15 years, if if we had a treatment that had a 50% response rate, you know, if you had proposed such a thing, you would have been thrown out of the hospital. It, it was considered science fiction. You know, I don't know how else to say it. It's kind of the same idea of saying, you know, 15 years ago, somebody would have said, there's a pill you can take for myeloma and you'll go in remission. I mean, you would have been laughed out of the out of the meeting. And yet those are kind of commonplace things today. So the significance of these approaches, I think, can't be overstated. Again, I think that it's important to note that these treatments don't work for everyone, and we're still trying to figure out why that is. But when they do work, they tend to be very durable in their activity. 
And can I ask a follow-up question about that? There's mm-hmm. been so much that's been talked about about profiling myeloma genetically and having specific, unique profiles and then targeting therapies for those profiles. Do you think that the people that these might be working for, it might be a genetic a specific genetic mutation that they have and it's affecting? Yeah, that's something that we're really interested in in our laboratory. So we, we've talked about this before, too, that myeloma is not one disease, that myeloma is probably a family of cancers, and treatments that may work for one may not work at all for another. And so I believe, uh, I suspect, I hypothesize that there are subtypes of myeloma that may be especially susceptible to immune therapy, and whether we can learn that by genetic profiling or whether we can do that through immunophenotyping or flow cytometry. or I, I think the more we know about the tumor cell, the better we can personalize therapy. And I, I think I think to, to step back and, and think about cancer therapy with broad brush strokes, this is an era that we're entering now as well. That Traditionally, we, we speak of cancer as with reference to anatomy. We, we say, oh, she had breast cancer or he had colon cancer or she had a blood cancer, and and we talk about cancer as being an anatomic disease, and it's not. Cancer is a molecular disease. It's a genetic disease. And I think we're just now entering this era, too, where once we understand the genetics and the molecular biology, we can develop treatments that target those those problems specifically. So I've shared this analogy with you before, too, that um, it's kind of like when your computer crashes. you, You can call the well, if your computer crashes, you can get your baseball bat out and hit it. It might make you feel better, but it's not going to make the computer work again. The other thing you can do is you can call an IT guy to come and find the bugs in the software program and fix the bugs, and then the computer will run again. And I think that analogy is kind of right where we are now in cancer research and cancer therapy, that traditionally we've hit these tumors with a bat, these cancers with a bat, because that's all we've had. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but... We're entering this era where we have the technology, we have the capability of finding bugs in the software program, in other words, finding mutations in the DNA, and then we can literally customize therapies for a particular cancer to fix the bugs in that software program, Um, or we can profile the tumors and find an immune therapy that will be particularly promising for uh, for that cancer. And is that today, or is that six months from now, or a year from now, or when do you think that will start happening, or is it already happening now? It's already happening now. It's already happening now. We um, So, for instance, in the CURE trial, before Joel or before any of the patients enrolled in the CURE trial, um, we did uh, laboratory testing to make sure that their um, their proteins would bind the antibody, and we made sure that their tumor had the inhibitory ligands expressed, and um, that was a criteria for enrollment on the trial. So it's something we're seeing more and more now. We have another antibody, um, a CD38 antibody study opening here where we're doing those kind, that kind of testing before a patient is enrolled to make sure that this is a treatment that has a good chance of working for them. Well, I think it's how it should be done, <laughs> just from a patient's perspective. Yeah, it's going to really redefine, I think, our whole clinical trial program it's going to define it's going to redefine how we develop treatments we talked about this in the last episode too that you know the whole phase 1 phase 2 phase 3 drug development was developed in a time where we didn't have this kind of technology and inevitably 
in those older trials, a lot of patients got drugs that didn't work, and nobody understood why, but that's where the science was at the time, and now things are a lot farther along than that. I, I think that we're we're getting to a point now where, I don't know if we're there yet across the board, but we're getting there now where we can think about myeloma as a family of diseases, for example, not just one disease, and that maybe not all therapies, it's not one size fits all when it comes to therapy, that there's certain subtypes that are especially responsive to one form and not another. And I, I think there's an important role in there for immune therapy. Thank you so much. Dr. Benson, I know that I would like to open it up to caller questions and give people an opportunity to ask you some questions. And Joel, if you'd like to ask any questions, we'd like to have you as well. So if you have a question that is specific to Dr. Benson's research, you can call 347 637 2631. And if you'd like to ask a question, you can press 1 on your keypad. So we have a caller from phone number 360-0038. So go ahead with your question. Thank you very much. Um, I had uh, just a question. You talked about how um, we can look at this cancer as a family um, and looking at multiple approaches um, to uh, making changes. What is the process um, in getting solutions, maybe uh, other areas, um, just as you have? You took um, cancer that was working with melanoma patients and now um, bringing it to myeloma. What is the process to take other solutions that, uh, that you know, maybe can be there as, you know, a combined attack on the um, family of cancers as you described it? What is the process? So thank you for the call and the question. The, the question is what is the process behind this kind of thinking? Well, I think her question is is about how do you take existing drugs that might already um, target a particular mutation or a particular issue and, and find them for myeloma? Okay. I, so I think that um, this is where collaboration comes in. I think this is where... Team science is very important. I, I think historically, traditionally, people um, in, in research, people in academics focus in one area specifically. And I, I do that. I do natural killer cell biology and immune therapy for myeloma. I, I think as we learn more about what makes cancer cells tick and what makes these cells work, uh, there, there's principles and there's lessons that we can translate between them. So Actually, earlier this week, there was a paper that came out in the journal Nature where they looked at 30 different cancer uh, 30 different cancer subtypes or 30 different cancers, and they found specific genetic signatures, sig- sig- uh, significant genetic mutation patterns that were reproducible across all of these cancers in, in something like 95% of the cases. The, the significance of the work, I think, is, is, is important because it, it, it implies that kind of the same thing we talked about a couple minutes ago. It implies that there's some final common pathway or there's some commonality in the genetic events that happen in a cell going from a normal cell to a cancerous cell. And um, that if we learn these signatures, if we learn um, their similarities and differences, uh, then we can really move away from um, describing cancers anatomically and we can start to talk about cancers molecularly. And it doesn't matter if it started in someone's bone marrow or in their liver, you know, we can we can conceptualize that cancer 
on a molecular level rather than on an anatomic level. But I think you know one of the keys is collaboration, and that's uh, something that's being emphasized at our institution, and I think nationally now, with, with the way that the NCI is and with the way that um, philanthropic groups are, I think that collaboration is key, and working across disease specificities is important. Uh, just earlier this afternoon, literally, I, I got an email from a friend of mine who um, uh, works in kidney cancer, and uh, they have characterized a mutation in kidney cancer cells, and they're developing a treatment that targets this enzyme. And it so happens that there are um, a couple of publications that this mutation might be important in myeloma, too. So he invited me to participate in a trial where some of the patients would have kidney cancer and some would have myeloma, but to be eligible for this uh, study, you had to have this particular mutation. And I, I think that's an example of where things are headed, that we're moving away from anatomic definitions and more towards molecular and, and genetic descriptions. Oh, well, I agree. And there was a article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday that was the front page that talked about, or the day before, that talked about uh, lung cancer and specific genetic mutations in lung cancer and how that's being treated. So I think that's part of the future as well. All right, we had a emailed question from a caller named Byron, and his question is, how would someone go about getting into the PD-1 trial? Oh, that's a good question. So um, when the trial is up, when it's open, um, the, the trial is, is um, it's all written and done. It's actually going, it's at our ethics committee now at our IRB, and I'm hoping it's going to open in September. But when it opens, it'll be online uh, on our Cancer Center website, um, and it'll also be on the national website. Well, Joel, I'd like to hear more about your clinical trial. Sure. Absolutely. What would you like to know? Um, well, first, why did you decide to join this trial? Yeah, as I think back, uh, that was the fall of 2011. Uh, this trial's last uh, two years. And at the time, I was post-transplant, uh, post about 18 months, and my monoclonal protein number began to rise very gradually. And Dr. Benson just introduced the idea to me, and understanding that he was the principal investigator on this trial gave me a lot of confidence in him. And rather than just going on with conventional treatment, uh, I decided that the, the clinical trial seemed uh, valuable to me, one, as just a patient to be able to give back, uh, mm-hmm. And secondly, I was able to get a uh, a clear sense from him that the risks uh, associated with the experimental trial were, were really no greater or less than conventional treatment. And so I made the decision to go ahead and, and join the trial. What did you think a trial would be like? Did you, did you have you know, any preconceived notions? Yeah, I sure did. Uh, in fact... Um, there was a at first diagnosis in 2009. Um, I actually had another oncologist that I was working with for a short time. Dr. Benson was actually a second opinion for me, and once I had experienced uh, his care, I made a very quick switch. And at that time, I was introduced to a clinical trial at uh, first diagnosis, and there was a lot of fear involved. Um, some of the fears were. Um, you know, I, I guess I assumed that clinical trials 
always seem to be um, what were like last-ditch efforts, and that scared me. Uh, I was just recently diagnosed, and really what I came to find out is that um, clinical trials aren't last-ditch efforts at all. In fact, this is how new treatments come to market. And uh, and so that was a fear. Um, I guess another fear was just not understanding what conventional treatment was versus what clinical trial was. And when I found out that clinical trials are as closely, if not more, monitored, uh, and my, my treatment would be so closely monitored, it, uh, you know, that kind of debunked my, my fear. And, and because you've had both kind of a conventional approach and then a clinical trial approach, was there a difference in the care that you received or the attention you received, or, or do you want to share anything about that? Yeah, sure. The, I guess I would say that the, the quality of my care was no different whether it was conventional care or the uh, experimental treatments that I've been on. Um, but the experimental protocols tend to demand a bit more lab work. And so I find myself giving a little more blood at my mm-hmm. monthly checkups. And um, they didn't require a bone marrow biopsy in this case before trial. They were able to use everything that they had gained at uh, first diagnosis and transplant. Um, so I just... I guess that's the one major difference is that um, the amount of time that they spend with me asking detailed questions about how I'm doing, side effects, they're very careful to understand all of those um, variables. Um, And then the only thing that happened the first day of the trial, I was actually admitted to the hospital for a 24-hour period just to monitor for side effects, which I had none. they basically infused me with the um, with the antibody treatment and sent me home the next day. And hmm. there it was just a, it was a monthly infusion of the experimental drug for eight months, and I never had I never had a an adverse reaction to the medication. And then Revlimid was the other drug that was administered uh, for a 21 day cycle every month, seven days off, and that continues to this day. Now, Dr. Benson um, earlier said that this trial was targeting a specific subtype or genetic mutation, possibly. So how did he come to determine that? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I, I know, I recall that during my diagnosis process uh, and then right before the clinical, or I'm sorry, the uh, autologous stem cell transplant, which was about four months after my diagnosis. I did have bone marrow biopsies done a total of two times, uh, both the biopsy and the aspirate, and they did do a cytogenetic test at that time, though you're asking a great question. Uh, I don't know my exact subtype. However, as you already heard Dr. Benson share, just having a myeloma specialist has been so critical in my care as a diagnosed person with myeloma, uh, knowing that he understands that and uh, and is looking for that to tailor my treatment to the cytogenetics that I have um, in the subtype of myeloma that I have. So that's been kind of nice, just to have confidence in his ability to uh, to measure that and to um, 
is to be aware of the treatment options that are going to be best for me. And because you've had both an oncologist and a myeloma specialist help you with your care, what do you see as the difference now? I suppose primarily it's the confidence with which I, uh, I'm able to entrust Dr. Benson with. Uh, when I think about any kind of um, physical issue, um, there's always the, the greater comfort uh, with the specialist over the general practitioner. And, uh, and so working with Dr. Benson, it gives me a sense of, like, I, I know that he is he's reading the research, he's doing the research, he's aware of all the drugs that are currently being researched and are, are new to market, as opposed to having to keep track of hundreds if not thousands of drugs for every kind of cancer that exists. And so that's been just incredibly important. In fact, many of our most of our conversation during my visits has to do with what's new in the research journals um, because he is on top of everything that's coming down the pike. Yeah, and participating. That's right. That's and exactly I, I, right. Yeah, that's a big differentiator, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, about your clinical trial, how long did the trial last? The trial is a total of two years, and so that will the two years will be completed this December, which is right around the time that Dr. Benson mentioned that he's going to be sharing the mm-hmm. results of this at, um, I believe it was the hematology conference. So I'm kind of excited about that. I look forward to hearing the results. And yeah. now that you've participated in a clinical trial, what do you think now that you're finished? Well, absolutely, I would do it again um, and, and will if the opportunity presents itself. Uh, in fact, uh, Dr. Benson had previously spoken to me about clinical trials and, and I don't know what research he was quoting here, but uh, he used a statistic that was pretty impressive. He said 80% of patients who participate in a clinical trial would do it again. And I really found that um, to be true of my experience that, again, because the, the side effects have been so manageable, in fact, most of my side effects have been those that most people experience on Revlimid, and... Um, I've been working full-time the entire two years. I'm fully engaged as a parent and a husband. Um, It hasn't robbed me of my life. Uh, I've been able to be fully participatory in my life. And so I feel like at this point it would be a very easy decision to continue continue on a clinical trial if that opportunity arose. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about that for a second in terms of risks because – Sometimes people view clinical trials as a risky option versus a conventional therapy. Can you speak to what what your experience was? Yeah, sure. You know, the the first clinical trial that was presented to me at diagnosis um, was a drug combination of four drugs. And I suspect that that experience would have been a little different, um, the side effects between the interaction effects of the drugs and, and, and just the the number of drugs being combined perhaps would have created a situation where I would have been a little more um, tired, uh, a bit more unable to continue on with my daily life. But my experience on this one personally, it's been so minimal. Um, again, the, the worst part of the clinical trial was was having an IV inserted every month and uh and sitting there for between 8 and 10 hours 
during the day of the infusion. That was it. There mm. really were no side effects that caused um, GI problems. There were no GI problems. There, were, there was no exhaustion associated with this. Some of that's because the experimental drug was, as Dr. Benson's already described, it's been used to harness my own immune response. And so it's not introducing a toxic substance into my system. It was introducing something that was going to alter how my immune system responded to myeloma. Well, I think we're all hopeful that immunotherapy can can cure this disease. It, Absolutely. Well, Joel, we are so glad you're on today's call. We would like to thank you and Dr. Benson for participating today. Thank you. Dr. Benson is listed in our doctor directory, so if you're interested in sending a message to him directly, you can go to the um, www.mpatient.org website, click on the doctor directory, and find his profile. We are very excited to hear about the outcome of his work, and we thank him so much for his persistence and dedication to finding a cure in new and advanced areas. Thanks for listening to another episode of Innovation in Myeloma. Join us next week for another interview on Ambition Radio. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.